Well, tonight we're finally going to get into the issue of the extent of the atonement. And I was wary of even doing this study right uh, right now because I explained last week. We're, tonight, we're only really going to be able to dip our foot into the water. We're not going to really solve the issue tonight or get too far with it. But I figured I've kept you waiting long enough. Past couple Wednesdays, we've done some, some other independent studies. So at the very least tonight, you'll get that solid introduction to this issue that we would call the extent of the atonement. So, you know, hey, again, there's some theology. I guess that's why you guys come on Wednesday. You signed up for this, right? You know what you're getting. This is just theology is what we do, at least lately on Wednesday nights. Now, real quick, I'll just repeat the scheduling issues for Wednesday nights. So next Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving, we're, we're off. We take that Wednesday off. The Wednesday after that, uh, we're meeting. I'll be out of town, so Oliver will be teaching on an independent topic. The Wednesday after that is December 6th, which we typically take that first Wednesday. We trade it for our, our Friday for our church's Christmas fellowship party, so that will be happening. So we're not meeting Wednesday, December 6th, but we are meeting that Friday, December 8th, for our uh, uh, Friday night Christmas party. And then the remaining three Sundays, we, or uh, Wednesdays rather, we, we take off. It's kind of our winter break. December is usually our, our off month. So we're pretty much taking a break after tonight on this Doctrines of Grace study, really until January 3rd when it comes to Doctrines of Grace. So come the new year, we're going to resume this study, pick it up. We'll tackle the extent of the atonement head on. And then we'll really get into the home stretch of this Doctrines of Grace study in maybe a few more months, and it should be all done. But that being said, though, again, tonight, I wanted to give you the, the big picture overview of this issue and of this debate. And what debate am I talking about? Well, the debate concerning for whom Jesus died. That's what this is all about. The extent of the atonement for whom Jesus died. Did Jesus die for all people or only for the elect. So far, we've covered, when it comes to the atonement, we've covered the big picture of the atonement itself, like we define what, what is the atonement? What does the atonement even mean and refer to? And then we last time delved more into the, uh, the substitutionary nature of Christ's atonement and really picked that apart. But now we, we've got to ask, on whose behalf did Jesus make this atonement? Who did he come for? Why, uh, this great work that he did, was it intended for all people without exception or for the elect only? This is an age-old debate that has divided many good and godly men, very orthodox and, and theologically conservative theologians. Even, even they are divided on this issue, and they still are. Nevertheless, we're going to do our best to try and understand both sides, examine the biblical arguments, and, and form some sort of a conclusion. Not going to do all that tonight, though. We're just going to stick to the former, namely just trying to understand both sides. That's our simple goal for tonight, just to introduce you to this whole issue and to both sides, that their basic beliefs and the verses they, they would use, just to get you kind of squared up. It can be a real challenge to wade through some of the arguments for and against these two views of, of the atonement. And it's, it's, that challenge is near impossible if, if you don't, at, at first, adequately understand that the different positions, if you don't really know what the positions are and what they claim to believe and their distinctions, you're going to get real confused real fast. So this will, like I said, get us set. When it comes to this bigger topic of the doctrines of grace, this issue may be the most challenging to deal with. 
simply because this is not a case where, you know, all Calvinists are on one side, all Arminians are on the other side. That has pretty much been the case with a lot of the other things we've studied so far. It's a very clear black and white. At least there's two clear sides to this. When it comes to the extent of the atonement, you will find Calvinists on both sides. This is the one issue that that Calvinists, in a way, split on. Remember uh, TULIP, the acronym used to describe the, the five points of Calvinism, which are sometimes referred to as the doctrines of grace. Remember this, TULIP? I, I know a lot of you know it. And uh, we've largely been organizing this study around those five points, more or less. You have T for total depravity, U for unconditional election. And then we're in the L right now, that's limited atonement. I is irresistible grace, and P is perseverance of the saints. Those are like the standard terms for these five points. But there's a segment of Calvinists out there, they, they might be referred to as four-point Calvinists. You may have heard of that term before, or maybe not. If you ever have, and you've ever wondered what that means, well, they're, they're missing a the point. They're, there's five points, they're four-point Calvinists, they've dropped one of them, and it's going to be the L. You know, tulip, they drop the L. They're the tulip, I guess. They're just, they drop the L for limited atonement. They hold to all other points and distinctives of Calvinism. They just hold to an unlimited atonement view. Now, I guess it's probably a good time to start defining some basic terms. So the traditional, uh, the traditional Arminian position has been that of unlimited atonement. That's the Arminian position and, and in a sense, the four-point Calvinist position, unlimited atonement sometimes called universal atonement. This view states that Jesus died on the cross for all people without exception. And he died in the same way for all people without exception. Christ's atoning death was intended for all. He was given over for every single person who ever lived. His death made a universal or unlimited provision for sin. Of course, not all people are saved by this universal provision, Rather, they have to believe in Jesus, and the provision of the atonement must be applied by faith. But they believe in this universal, unlimited provision that is equally made for all people. That's kind of like the baseline, right? And in contrast, you have the the Calvinist position, the traditional Calvinist position, which is termed limited atonement. So unlimited, this is limited atonement. Many opt for other terms, though, like uh, particular redemption, or definite atonement. And the point they're making is that Christ's atoning death was intended for the elect only, and his death actually secured their salvation. So it wasn't just this provision that didn't actually save or secure anyone's salvation. It it actually secured their salvation. It was particular and definite in its intent and its accomplishment. All for whom Jesus died will truly be saved seeing that their sins were paid for on the cross. The Arminian position means that there are people in hell for whom Jesus died in the same way that he died for people who are in heaven. And the Calvinist says, no, those for whom Jesus died, they they all go to heaven, basically. Again, many Calvinists reject the term limited atonement as misleading. And in a sense it is, because both sides limit the atonement. We'll, We'll get into that later, but in short... Both sides limit the atonement. Calvinists limit the extent of the atonement. So you have the atonement, which truly saves, it's truly powerful, but it's limited in extent. It's only for the elect. The Armenian, they too limit the atonement. They limit its efficacy. 
it's universally applied that everyone you know, can partake, but it doesn't actually secure anyone's salvation. They limit the, the power of the atonement. So everyone's limiting the atonement one way or another. The Calvinist limits those to whom it's applied, namely the elect only and provided for. The Arminian limits really the, the efficacy, the power of the atonement. It's just, you know, it makes people savable, but doesn't actually secure anyone in particular salvation. This is just trying to get you in the ballpark of understanding the two sides. We will get into this way more detail later. Now, before going into further detail, differentiating these two views, and in reality, there's four views, it will be worthwhile to first survey the biblical landscape, like some of the biblical or the Bible verses rather on this. Both sides have their share of verses which they claim prove their case or support their case. Uh, The unlimited atonement side has many verses that they primarily point to, all these verses that use seemingly universal language. Verses that that say Jesus died for all or died for the world. And that's, that's a huge bulk of their argument. They also support their case by the fact that God desires all to be saved and that the gospel is offered to all. And they reason the only way you could legitimately offer the gospel to all people as if Jesus truly died for all people. So they point to those verses as well. In contrast, the limited atonement view is supported by many verses which use limited language, like Jesus died for many, not all, but for many. And there are many verses that speak of Jesus specifically coming to die for his people, or he died for the church. So we have quite the contrast of verses, and now we're going to Read through a bunch of these verses. So you got, you got them in your notes. I tell you what, turn to the Gospel of John. I'll just leave you in John. Anything that's not in John, I'll read for you, just to kind of make it easy for you. We're going to go through a lot of these. It's going to be quick. This is we're not, we're not making any arguments tonight. We're not getting that detailed. We're just exposing you to, to the key verses and the key points of these two systems, two views. And so we'll start with verses on, on unlimited atonement. And you can go to John chapter 1 to begin. And right off the bat, and you've probably maybe thought about this yourself, or encountered these verses yourself, and maybe even wondered what they meant, but there are a good handful of verses which, which relate Jesus dying for, giving himself up for, the world. And so let's read some of these. John 1, 29. You've got Jesus. uh, John the Baptist says, Behold of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he takes away the sin of the world. And then turn to John chapter 3. The famous verses, starting with verse 14. It says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For, and you know the famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And so, again, a very prominent, well-known verse about Jesus, God, God's love for the whole world, uh, reason why he sent Jesus to come. John four forty two. one more here in John. 
And the Samaritans responding to the woman at the well, they say, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Christ is the Savior of the world. And that, that testimony is confirmed elsewhere where the Bible says Christ is the Savior of the world. I read some other verses for you now that you, you know, it's going to be quick, so you don't have to flip along, and they're in your notes, but just some quick references. Romans eleven fifteen speaks of uh, the rejection of Israel becoming uh, the reconciliation of the world. It says, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Speaking of reconciling the world, that's exactly what 2 Corinthians 5.19 says. It says, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So you get what I'm saying? That sounds, it sounds universal. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Then a pair of verses that, that always come up in this discussion. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Speaking of Christ, that he's the propitiation for our sins. Remember we studied what that word means, the satisfaction of God's wrath relating to the atonement. Christ is the propitiation of our sins. But it says, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. It's a significant verse in the debate. 1 John 4, 14 it says, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So, there's a good chunk of verses that, that speak of Christ's death and his coming as some way being related to the world. We'll leave it at that. Like I said, we're, we're refraining from commenting. We're refraining from really entering the debate. We're just kind of staging the debate. So, that's, that's part one. Jesus died for the world. Secondly, you've got another handful of verses that speak of Jesus dying for all. Another example of universal language, just language that appears universal and that would therefore, if it's taken universally, would lead you to unlimited atonement, that his death was for all people who ever lived. So I'll read a couple of these verses for you. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And the point they make there is, you know, we're all sinners. And he, he makes the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So he's, he's atoning for all of our sin. You got Romans 3, 23 and 24. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. They reason all people have sinned. All have the opportunity to be justified of their sins. And so he, he made that uh, provision available for all. Romans 5.18 mentions that through one transgression, there resulted in uh, condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Again, that the provision of justification is there for all people. So they would say and argue. We got 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, which says, speaking of Christ, it says, one died for all. Therefore, all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So it's, it's clearly an atonement verse, Jesus dying on their behalf, and it says he died for all. 1 Timothy 2, 4-6, this is a significant verse, one to, to circle, that we'll definitely come back to. 
It says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony given at the proper time. So you have a verse that speaks of God's desire for all to be saved. And then it says that God gave Christ as a ransom for all. So that's definitely some universal language that has to be contended with, right? And you have 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. 1 Timothy 4.10. Speaking of uh, God, and it says, God is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Another significant verse. God is the Savior of of all men, especially of believers. That's truly universal language, and so you're going to have to explain, in what sense is God the Savior of all men, especially of believers? That's a a verse to contend with as well. Titus 2.11 says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And they would say, again, it's made available to all because of this unlimited atonement. Hebrews 2.9, speaking of Jesus, it says that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. An atonement verse, for sure, saying that he might taste death for everyone. Speaking of his death being in, uh, something for everyone. And then lastly, Second Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so they'll point to these verses Again, the the bulk of their argument has to deal with just the universal language of the New Testament specifically. They take it at face value. They'll say world means world, everybody included, all means all, everybody included. Take it at face value, you get to uh, unlimited atonement. And that, in a sense, that's true. If you you take the universal language to be truly universal, that's really the definition of unlimited atonement. They'll also mention, I'll be be brief with these, these next points here. They mention that... Jesus came for sinners, and that includes everybody, right? There are verses that speak of Christ coming. What was his mission? To to die for sinners. Well, we're all sinners, right? So does that mean he died for everybody? That's how they would reason. Like Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. His mission, right, that's the atonement. His mission was the atonement. We're all lost. He came for the lost. He must have died for everybody. You've got Romans 5, 6. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We're all ungodly. He must have died for all. 1 Timothy 1, 15. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We're all sinners. Must have came for us all. And 2 Peter 2, 1. This is a special verse, actually, that they'll point out. 2 Peter 2, 1. It says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So they'll point out, here's a verse which speaks of people who used to be Christians who are false teachers, and it says they have denied the master who bought them. And so they'll claim these are people who were, look, they were bought by the blood of Christ. They were atoned for, but they denied Christ and fell away. And they'll use this as a case study example that here's someone who's not saved who was atoned for, who had atonement provided for at the very least. That's another very big verse that we will return and look at later. And then finally, they'll pair these two points together that the gospel is offered to all and God desires all to be saved. 
And, and they reason the only way, and it is true, the gospel is offered to all in the New Testament. And the only way that can be legitimate and not some kind of charade or sham is if Christ truly died for all people. That it can be a legitimate offer of the gospel. Like you can, you can actually be saved. This provision has been made and it's there for you specifically if you believe. And they believe the only way you can offer salvation is if Christ truly atoned for their sins. So we actually already looked at several verses that speak of God's desire for all to be saved. Uh, we could add to that, you know, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven speaks of God. This is jump, jumping down to the bottom. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he calls to people to turn and to live. We already read First uh, Timothy 2, 4 where it says God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And we read 2 Peter 3.9 as well. Uh, I'll go back, though, to the gospel is offered to all and just read a few verses here. You have in the Old Testament, Isaiah 45, verse 22, where, where God calls out, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Even the Old Testament, God just calling out to the world, Turn to me and be saved, he says. Kind of like Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, he says, "Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest." It's a universal offer. You're in John, so why don't you turn to John one twelve? There are many verses like this that just speak of salvation being available to to all people, all who would believe. John one twelve, it says, "But as many as received him." To them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. So there's this potential for anyone to believe, you just have to, or to be saved rather, you just have to believe. Or John 6.37, why don't you flip over there since you're in John. John 6.37. It says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Even though the first half of this verse speaks of, of God's sovereignty, they, they point to the second half of this verse where Christ says, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And just and there again, there's many verses like this, just speaking of we have the ability to come, they would say, and there's a provision made that all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved, like Acts 2.21 says. Or Acts 10.43 I have my notes. Acts 10.43, that whoever believes shall receive forgiveness. And so there it is, you know, forgiveness available, atonement has been made. It's just now whoever believes will receive it. So we'll leave it there. There's a lot of verses like it. You can read the rest on your own time. You've got the list in front of you. So they put together these two basic chains of arguments. One just look at the universal language. Jesus died for all. Jesus died for the world. Atonement, there you go. It's an unlimited atonement. Universal atonement has been made for all people. And they also add on to that that you know, God desires all to be saved. And he offers salvation to all people. You just have to believe. So, again, that leads to this belief of that an atonement was made for all people. It's just up to people to believe. So that's... The, the kind of basic, traditional, unlimited atonement view with, you know, the key verses that they use in support. And really covered the key verses. So far, so good. Now, let's do that. We'll do, we'll do it again. We're, we're kind of being quick here, but we'll now do that same version for the limited atonement view. 
Look at some of the verses they use to say, no, no, not so fast. Jesus actually came specifically for the elect. And there's, you can counter all those verses of, of Jesus dying for all with Jesus dying for many, which is obviously a subset and a, a smaller group. And then they'll say that he also died specifically for just the church, where there are verses that speak of his redemption as being particular, not universal, but he died for the church, for God's people. Let's look at some of those verses now. There's Matthew 121, where it says Jesus came to save his people for their sins. So in the birth narrative, why is the, the Messiah coming, born of a virgin? To save his people from their sins. That's very specific, not, not the world there. You're in John 637, right? If you actually keep reading the passage, John 637, it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. They point out in these verses that the will of God here is sending the Son to, to give his life for those whom the Father gave to the Son. The Father has given a, a certain group of people whom the Bible calls the elect. The Father has given them to the Son as an inheritance, and Christ came to redeem that specific inheritance which is at least alluded to in these verses. We're not going into detail, but, you know, take it, take it or leave it right there. Turn over to John chapter 10. This is another big verse that limited atonement people will use. John chapter 10, all the teaching of Christ is the good shepherd. A lot of verses here. Let's just jump down to verse 11. Christ says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 26, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. It's a significant passage in a string of verses where Christ, he teaches between his sheep, those who are his sheep and not his sheep. What, uh, what makes you a sheep? It's not the fact that you believe. He, he tells them, you're not my sheep, or rather in verse 26, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. He doesn't say you're not my sheep because you don't believe. And if you had merely believed, you'd be my sheep. He says first, no, the reason you don't believe is because you're not my sheep. And so he paints this picture that there is a group of people, a category of people known as the sheep, whom the Father gave to the Son, the Son came to redeem. And he says several times, as a good shepherd, I lay down my life for the sheep. In this case, at least, he doesn't say the world. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep, who are this specific allotment of people given to the Son to redeem. Other verses will speak of this group with a different metaphor, not as the sheep, but as the bride. That Christ came to lay down his life for the bride and to redeem a bride. We'll look at those in a second. But while you're still in John, look at John 15. Turn over to John 15. Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life 
for his friends. Just another example now of of particular language, no longer universal language, but now particular language. Speaking of Christ, and this is the night before his death, teaching his disciples of his mission, laying down his life for his friends. And we've seen already in the Gospel of John, you're going to have to make sense of this somehow. You've got universal language and very particular language in just John's Gospel alone. You're going to need to, to figure out which one's which. Well, that's it for John. Let me read you a few more verses here on uh, Jesus dying for the church. Acts 20, 28 uh, tells the elders to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Speaking of God the Son purchasing the church with his own blood. Remember, purchase, that's atonement language. And then what? who did Jesus really purchase? This verse says the church. Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul, speaking of the redeemed believers, the church, there are many verses like this, that limited atonement people will say, you have verses that teach that, no, he died for the church, he died for us. And they'll use that, you know, the the us word as uh, limiting the atonement. Romans 8, 32 through 34 says that God did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will, he not, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And then if you're thinking, well, you know, us, that's just talking about believers. That's not talking about the elect. I mean, just anyone could be a believer. But this verse actually limits it to the elect because the verse 33 says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? And later it says Christ intercedes for us. So limited atonement people will point out that here's a verse teaching that you know, Christ, uh, God sent Christ to, to deliver us from death, the elect. He was sent for the elect. They'll point that's a big one we'll, we'll come back to later. Galatians 1, 3, and 4 says that Jesus gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father. Another verse that uses now limited terminology, not all people, but just us, the church, they would argue. Galatians 2.20, Paul even gets personal. Speaking of Jesus, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So that's the opposite end of the spectrum from universal language. That's just as particular as it gets, Paul saying he died for me in particular. Now, here's another, uh, I would say, more significant verse, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. It says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that's getting very particular now. Jesus loved the church. doesn't say he loved the world and gave himself up for her, that's atonement language, the giving of himself, substitution, gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So limited atonement proponents would use a verse like this to teach that God's will before the world was to secure a bride for the son, a remnant, the elect, that he would send the son into the world to to save this bride, to redeem this bride for himself, 
and that God the Father and God the Son set their love on this bride before the world was. Like Ephesians 1 says, uh, in love he predestined us to redemption uh, and so forth. Like this verse says, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that's how they'll argue with verse like this. Colossians 1, 12 through 14. We give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That verse is, is laden with atonement terminology, like we talked about last time. And yet it's all, in this case, it's not universal. At the very least, it's particular. It's us. He redeemed us. He transferred us, meaning the church. Again, Titus 2.14, Christ gave himself to redeem us. Hebrews 7.25, that Christ is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Well, we'll talk about later how Christ's priestly role is in several passages limited to the church, to the elect. And remember, atonement, that's a function of his priestly role. So they'll argue based on Christ's priestly role that he, both as the interceder or intercessor and the sacrifice, it was made on behalf of the elect only. First uh, Peter 2.24, that Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Not all people die to sin and live to righteousness. Only those for whom Christ died die to sin and live to righteousness. They will argue, and, uh, and that verse would therefore imply that he died only for the church. One more here, Romans 5, uh, Re- Revelation 5.9. The throne room scene, it says, they sang a new song saying of Jesus, Worthy are you to take the book, and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It's actually quite a significant verse because of how quite direct and specific it is. It's an atonement verse, right? You were slain and you purchased for God with your blood. The purchase terminology, the redeeming from the marketplace terminology is very clear here. And it's it's quite specific. It's, it's not universal. He purchased for God with his blood, not all people, not every tribe and tongue and people and nation, but men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It's a significant verse limiting the atonement, it seems like, to people from every tribe and tongue, but not every single person in every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So there's, there's a bunch of verses that just seem to limit the atonement, Christ's coming, Christ's mission, his death to the church, to the elect. Now we'll also throw in here some verses that talk about Jesus dying for many. In distinction from all, limited atonement, people will point out, well, you got verses that say he died for many, which at least seems to exclude the other people. Like Isaiah 53 I'll just read a few verses here, verse 11 and 12. It says, speaking of Christ in a prophecy, that the servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities, and that he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So they'll just point out, it's not all, it's, it's the many. And it's, it's a specific group, though. It's not just many, it's the many. There's a, a group being talking, uh, spoken about here. 
Matthew 20, 28, and Mark 10, 45, that Christ, he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It's an interesting verse because now we have a pair of verses. When you think back to, I think it was 1 Timothy 2, 6, that said, yeah, God sent Jesus to be, to, to be a ransom for all. Gosh, I better just read it now. 1 Timothy 2, 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all. That's an atonement word. Remember we talked about ransom is, is an atonement-related word. So that is a verse that uses the word ransom with universal language. He gave himself as a ransom for all. But now we have a verse here in Matthew 20 and Mark 10. We have ransom being limited. That Christ, the Son of Man, gave himself as a ransom for many. It's going to leave you wondering, just, just which one is it? Is it many? Is it all? What, what, is it the world? What's, what's going on here? Well, let's keep going. Matthew 26, 28, the uh, Lord's Supper, instituting the Lord's Supper. Christ said of the blood of the covenant. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Some would argue this is a perfect chance for Jesus to teach universal atonement. Here's my blood. It's poured out for everyone for forgiveness of sins. But he, he himself limits it. His blood is being poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And then Hebrews 9.28, that Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Again, an opportunity to make it universal, but it says he was offered once an atonement verse to bear the sins of many. So those are verses that the unlimited atonement people will have to contend with on their part, verses that seem to, seem to limit the atonement to the church, to the redeemed, to the elect. And then lastly, I'll just point out here, the priestly role of Christ is limited to the elect. John 17, let's turn there and we can nearly end there. Turn to John 17. This, this is another quite significant verse on the limited atonement side where Christ, night before his death, this is the high priestly prayer. He's praying for his people. And as this high priest, he specifically does not intercede or pray for the world. He prays only for his people, the elect, the church. John 17, 9. Christ says, I ask on their behalf, meaning his, his disciples and his future disciples. He says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And there's more in John 17. Limited atonement people would make the point that, look, Christ, as the great high priest, his prayers are always answered. He's praying for the, the, the security of the salvation of his people. And as the high priest, who is both the offerer of the great atonement sacrifice and the sacrifice himself, they would reason that if he's interceding for the elect only, he must have died for the elect only as well. And this verse, you know, it says what it says pretty clearly. He did not, he's not praying for the world. He's praying specifically for uh, the elect, for his people. And 1 John 2, 1, we'll point out how if any of us sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Again, he's there as our heavenly advocate, our, our intercessor, interceding for us as a priestly function, not for the world. He's interceding for us, they would say. So there you go. That's, that's the biblical testimony. That really is a, a pretty solid list of verses. You won't find too many other verses used in this argument. That's 
I'm not going to say exhaustive, but I think it's pretty close. I, I really did a lot of study. I wanted to find all the verses that everyone keeps using. Most people will use, you know, 10 of each uh, of those two lists, keep going over and over, but I think you've got a pretty good survey there. If you want to try and boil it down, if you flip to your last page, a little uh, contrast chart will help you to now just boil down what these two sides are saying here when it comes to the atonement, the extent of the atonement. Now, I'm just going to read this through. The left side, right side, unlimited atonement versus limited atonement. Unlimited atonement, also called general atonement or universal atonement, whereas limited would also be called definite atonement or particular redemption. But now getting into their views, uh, Christ's atoning death was intended for all people versus Christ's atoning death was intended for the elect. Jesus died for no one in particular versus Jesus died for the elect in particular. Jesus died for all without exception versus Jesus died for all without distinction. That point right there where limited atonement proponents, they still can say Jesus died for all, but they would say it's all without distinction. Just means, you know, all humanity without distinction, but not all people without exception. That one gets you, just just come back later. Next one, uh, Christ's death made it possible for everyone to be saved, but did not actually secure the salvation of anyone versus Christ's death made it possible for the elect to be saved and actually secured salvation for them. Christ's death made a provision of atonement, which can be accessed by all through faith, versus Christ's death made actual atonement, the effects of which are applied to the elect when they believe by sovereign grace. The death of Jesus did not actually save anyone, but made all people savable, versus the death of Jesus actually secured the salvation of the elect. Next, the atonement made possible the salvation of everyone, but made certain the salvation of no one, versus the atonement made possible the salvation of the elect and made certain the salvation of the elect. That one's kind of redundant, but it's just saying it in a different way. Next, there are people in hell for whom Jesus died, versus there are no people in hell for whom Jesus died. Next one, the evangelist can preach to all people saying, Jesus died for you. And here, this is, uh, Calvinists are split. Some Calvinists will not preach, Jesus died for you. They will not say to a crowd, Jesus died for all of you. Whereas some Calvinists still will. And we'll talk about that one later. The last two kind of go together. Uh, The effect for this is for unlimited atonement. The effect of the atonement is limited. Versus the extent of the atonement is limited. Whereas unlimited atonement people, the extent of the atonement is unlimited. But the effect of the atonement is unlimited for limited atonement proponents. The last one is going to confuse you probably. So look now at the bottom chart. The little uh, four part diagram there. Just kind of summing up the extent of the atonement views. So on the left-hand side, you have the provision of the atonement, right? This is Jesus, his death on the cross. He made provision. Was that provision unlimited or limited? Meaning, was his death on the cross intended for all people or for the elect? That's that's the provision side, right? And now, now think about the application side. You have the atonement, and is it applied to all people or is it applied to the elect only? If you get these differences and you combine them together, you get different views. So look, limited provision, 
limited application. Christ died for the elect only, and only, only the elect are saved. That's the, the traditional Calvinist view. Is that, is that starting to make sense a little? And you compare that to the total opposite view. Unlimited provision and unlimited application. That, way, that says that Jesus died for all people, and that atonement is applied to all people without exception. That's universalism. That means everybody goes to, goes to heaven, whether you believe or not. That's the extreme opposite. Now, of course, that's a clearly unbiblical and heretical view, really, but you, you get that picture, right? And then kind of in the middle of that, you would say unlimited provision, where Jesus died for all people. He made a, a provision for everybody, but it's, it's applied in a limited sense. It's not applied to everybody. And there you get the Arminian position and the four-point Calvinist position. Starting to make a little more sense, at least the views, like where they come from. And just to, to finish with a few points of clarification here. So yeah, I, I trust we can, without getting into it, we can disregard the universalist position that's so clearly not biblical. But just a little more clarity on the Arminian position and the four-point Calvinist position. You know, Jesus died for all, they would say, made a provision of atonement for all people alike, but not all will be saved. The application of Christ's atonement is limited. Only believers will be saved. So there's a limited application. That's the big difference, in a sense. The question is, how is the application limited? Or rather, by whom is the application of the atonement limited? By God or by man? This is what separates the Arminians and the four-point Calvinists, because they're not the same. They both hold to an unlimited provision. So Jesus died for all people, and he made this provision of salvation for all people. But that provision is, is applied to only some people, and, and, and who decides? Who, who, who applies the, the provision of salvation? Who, who, who controls that? The Arminian will say, man. That man's free will, you have to choose. So man limits the atonement by his own free will. Whereas the four-point Calvinist will still say that, well, no, God still limits who is actually provided for based on his sovereign decree of election. So it is still thoroughly a Calvinist view, but they, they still believe in a universal provision of, uh, of atonement. Does that one make sense to you? And then that's all in contrast, of course, to the, the traditional Calvinist view, which is simply states that Christ's atonement, it was, it was by design and intent only ever made for the church, the elect, the bride, that that's who Christ came for, that's who the mission, the, the rescue mission was for, and he, he died for them, and he effectually secured their salvation. It was a, an actual atonement, not a provisional atonement, and, uh, and they will be saved entirely because of what he did. Christ point, or Calvinists point out that the other views watered down the atonement itself, making Christ's death not an actual atonement, but really a potential work of salvation, uh, redemption, that Jesus only made people savable on the cross. In contrast, Calvinists believe Jesus truly atoned for the sins of the elect, effectually securing their salvation on the cross, and his atonement leads to the salvation of the elect without fail. All right, so there you have it. Like I said, if you're getting technical, there's really four views. We're going to throw out the universalist view, and we're left with actually now three views. The traditional Calvinist view, the Arminian view, and then the four-point Calvinist view. 
themselves representing unlimited atonement versus limited atonement. That's the landscape. There's a bunch of verses. And if you're like me, when I was a new believer and I started getting into this issue, and for some reason I studied it early on, I, I was always very intrigued by the question, even as a new believer. And I was just confused. I had no idea. Because I would read the unlimited atonement guys, and it's like, that's really convincing. You've convinced me. And then I'd read the limited atonement guys, and I'd say, that's really convincing too. You've convinced me as well. And it's just that middle ground, like, someone's got to be wrong, though. Is, is there something in the middle? Am I missing something? Where do we land? So, at the very least, hopefully you understand the landscape. You still may be confused. You still probably are confused. If you want that confusion reconciled, if you want to start getting into, you know, at least which one I think is right, and where, where do we land, you have to come back in the new year. <laughs> That's got a long wait. Because, like I said, we were only going to introduce it tonight. You have to come back in several weeks, and we will get there. July. We have to finish this Doctrines of Grace before we move Yeah, I know, right? We will. I think we will finish before you guys move. Yeah. All right. So that's it. Let me pray. Oh, Lord God, although we, we got into a good Bible survey tonight, uh, didn't, didn't land anywhere at the same time, Lord, we're thankful at the very least for what we do know, namely the atonement that happened and that Christ has died. And at the very least, for our sakes, we, we thank you for, for our own salvation, that one way or another, his atonement was applied to us, that we believe and, and we have been saved by the, by the blood of Christ, which at the very least was, was paid for for us. And uh, we trust we'll learn more. We know we'll learn more. Your word is rich. Your word is clear as well. And uh, at the same time with these issues, we want to be gracious to all and, and for our brethren who believe differently. And so give us humility and and understanding in the future. But for now, may we leave just remembering that uh, the bigger picture that in love you sent Christ to die for our sins. And we we give you praise for that. And uh, we can let all know that uh, that the Savior has come and point them to Christ. But give us clarity in the future more and more that we can worship you more and more for this great work of sending Christ into the world. And we thank you for that. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.